episode 17 on Kishore Mapabani's Catch China 1, part 2. Thanks for listening. Yeah, so that takes us to the part of the book where now Mababani is going to shift gears a little bit. He's identified all of these problems or two main problems, one on the part of the Chinese and another on the part of Americans. And he puts the onus on American foreign policy thought to change. And he, he poses the question point blank in chapter five here, can the United States make U-turns? And, and what he means by U-turns, I think, is whether the United States can even make strategic changes in its vision for engaging China. So uh, the short answer to that question in this chapter is no, uh, the United States cannot make U-turns. And the argument is pretty interesting. It's, you know, I I think uh, we would agree that the United States cannot make U-turns, but we probably argue from a different set of conditions. It would probably make it about class and kind of the entrenched class, entrenched class interests in the United States. It would make it impossible to confront China in any rational way or a way that wasn't so competitive as with the Soviet Union. You might have a different take on that, but that's where I would argue from, I think, primarily. But what he's talking about is the entrenched interest of lobbyists in the United States, which I think is maybe related, but also that there's an inflexibility on the part of American strategic planners because of American exceptionalism, which is ingrained in the DNA of political thought here. No, that was good. I think that um, the best formulation that that gets to what Mahbubani is arguing is this. In the current geopolitical conflict, America is behaving like the USSR and China is behaving like America in the Cold War, which is to say that um, America is the one with a bloated military budget that's spending way out of um, any reasonable, any sustainable capacity. And China is the one with the more dynamic economy and the one that... um, less likely to um, spend itself into the grave. And um, there's obviously even a bigger, you know, there's even more important differences that China's military budget is nowhere comparable to the, to the United States. And throughout the Cold War, American and Soviet Union were truly pure competitors in terms of military um, technology and military capacity. So China is not really trying to even do that. It's not engaging with the United States on that level. Certainly not yet. Yeah, yeah, and and that's a that's a good point. I mean, you've added color there on the military lobbyists, and and that's really the the uh, the entrenched thinking is everything. Um, you know, the United States is so overbloated on the military side that it that it actually you know th- those interests cannot be countermanded. It's it's such a big part of um, arguments from economic security in the U.S. And Mabubani reminds readers that. Um, you know, the military industrial complex has been wise to place, uh, you know, military industry in every key congressional district in the United States. So it can't be countermanded in a way that's politically sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he makes the point that China actually benefits from this in a sense, because China's not looking, in his opinion, to confront the United States militarily. I think that's true. And China's technological savviness and, and uh, you know, investment in R&D allows it to develop Certain, um, and I'd like you to speak to this a little bit. Certain, uh, you know, defensive means of counter counteracting or counterbalancing that bloated American aggressive muscular American uh, infrastructure. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what some of that technological um, statecraft is? Yeah. So um, China's strategy is 
what people call anti-axis aerial denial, which is basically the use of uh, missiles on Chinese territory to um, establish a large radius umbrella of defense against um, American aircraft carriers and um, its naval fleet so that it can rely on um, missiles, I think hypersonic missiles. One of them is the DF-26 that costs only, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars each, but it's capable of destroying, you know, an aircraft carrier that costs, you know, $15 billion or more. Right. And the you could say the overall strategy is to allow the United States to continue to overspend for the not only for the you know production of um, more um, naval technology, but the exorbitant costs of operating these platforms, which when you consider not just the operation of a aircraft carrier, but the whole fleet that's needed to defend it, it's like you know it's on the order of six or seven million dollars a day to op- operate right. it. You know, several what is it? It's probably like fifteen ships around a an aircraft carrier because they have to be defended because those things in themselves are so expensive. There's also mm-hmm. the operating costs of, you know, f- um, um, of pilots, keeping them trained, keeping them, you know, um, able to land on aircraft carriers. It's a whole operation to, you know, uh, there's a whole, you know, slew of operational costs to that, that are, that just would totally dwarf um, what it costs for the, for, for China to just to defend itself, which is its, you know, primary goal. And on yeah. the other hand, it, it's in China's economic interest for the United States to bear the costs, bear the protection costs of um, allowing for the um, for open commerce on the global commons of the sea. The question for Mabubani is whether or not the United States can, if not make a complete U-turn in terms of the way it engages China, whether or not it can make the um, strategic adaptations in military technological procurement that would create a um, new strategy in the South China Sea and in the Pacific. Um, it's basically, um, you know, we I don't know that much about this stuff, but it seems like the direction that um, both countries are going in is the use of unmanned vehicles, drones, and um, AI technology um, for all kinds of ways of breaking or busting each other's radars and network systems of uh, networked weapon systems. Um, and the question really is whether or not the United States can adapt to this new dynamic situation. So let's talk about some of the other gifts that the United States is giving China by virtue of this um irrational military policy. I like that um, that Mabubani throws in an anti-Iraq war uh, argument to make his case. Uh, and essentially says that, you know, there's no country in the world that uh, that can afford to be removed from the Middle East as much as the United States, but it has entered this quagmire over the last two decades. Um, and all this has done essentially is is allowed China to kind of take advantage of those uh, you know th- this distraction from from itself uh, and and see one of the largest like increases in its GDP over that period you know from its entry in WTO through um, you know the current period and and I think his point is I mean it's 
Mahbubani may not, he, he doesn't present like a principled anti-war position here, but he does acknowledge that it's completely irrational uh, with respect to the United States' larger, uh, you know, uh, uh, geopolitical goals. You want to shed any additional light on that? Yeah, well, he just talks about how the um, you know, Chinese and other leaders around the world were so surprised that the United States did that and then for it to maintain its presence there in this sort of endless um, kind of death drive of seeking to like, you know, a, <laughs> a heroic end or whatever. I mean, what is it? It's a to uh, peace with peace with valor kind of idea of like, you know, how to how to leave these places is, you know, really absurd. It's a kind of um, it's a kind of a, it's like credibility edging. Yeah. Um, and in connected to that, I mean, so this this argument about um, being able to afford to step back from the Middle East. Um, and, and if that's the case, I mean, any rational person is going to wonder, okay, so why are they still there? And uh, Mabubani comes back to a, to our friend uh, Robert Kagan, who we talked about in the last episodes, um, who he really uh, dunks on in this, which which is kind of refreshing. Yeah. And, and he brings out kind of the worst, like, I mean, I think it's fair to say kind of racist, uh, you know, inclinations about the, the chaos that the third world would be you know that would fall into if the united states did not run roughshod over it um and he calls it this kind of neo white man um yeah neo white man's burden yeah. um and 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 mabubani says look you know i was i've been in southeast asia my entire life and i was here when the united states pulled out in 75 and over the last 40 years, Southeast Asia has just been fine without the United States occupying the region. So, well, it still um, occupies the region, but that that but yeah. but without it, but with with it pulling back from a major, you know, um, offensive position and uh, and being engaged in a war. But I mean, an American like K, you know, K, person like Kay when we retort back that, um, well, it's precisely the existence of the United States in the region that you know helped to um, you know balance and keep one any any um conflict from getting uh, out of hand but um like as you brought up mabubani is definitely right to um talk about the the um diplomatic efforts of asian countries themselves to um you know um lift themselves up into and participate in this you know period of globalization that still of course is american-led during this period but it it is indeed a a, a form of heavy state intervention and state-led um, economic growth that sustained much of the success story of Asian countries' entry into the global marketplace. But um, you know, to the, to the other point you're making about about you know Kagan, it's like precisely that the assumption that removal or, or reduction of American commitment in an area means everything falls apart and that the, and that the jungle grows back is the name of his book. Um, <laughs> it's pretty fucking bold, yeah. man. It's like a real slap in the face to anybody. The jungle like, grows back. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, I like the point. Um, I, I think it, it telescopes the history a little bit. I mean, as listeners will remember from our coverage of uh, the Jakarta method, uh, much of the peace and, and stability in the region was um, largely after the fact of having murdered or being complicit in the murder of uh, leftists and, um, you know, communists and social democrats in the region. The United States kind of burned the place to the ground and left, and, and that's where, I mean, it was like... A, a desert of, they uh, called peace. A piece of a, yeah. an array of corpses, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there, so the the upheaval that um, that could have could have I think disturbed the balance of power there was was wiped out entirely and brutally by the United States. Um, it wasn't just like the United States left. You mean they were there and they left, and then we have this peaceful situation. It wasn't that. It was, uh, you know, the, the political scene was raised to the ground and placed on the United States open door order. So one way of you know thinking about um, this question: um, Can America make strategic U-turns or make strategic adaptations? Is to um, pose a question of the, what to what degree has Trump disrupted um, or changed um, America's relationship with China? Will the Biden administration um, basically have to fall in its wake or continue in the basic direction of, if not? Such belligerent, not even belligerent confrontation, but such aggressive confrontation with China, whether or not it will basically have to um, maintain the form of placing pressure on China or whether it can move in a direction that Mabubani argues is rational. I think that my expectation is that Biden will take a very different approach to Trump, but the United States is going to try to contain China and use its military and political power to start to slow its economic growth. That, that That's going to be a, a long-term and better coordinated strategy than Trump ever imagined. But it's going to be something that um, American state planners are going to engage in. Biden would really like to try to renew the TPP, but I think the discussions are just, I mean, after the last four years of Trump and, and what was the, you know, the trade war over the last few years, I think it's going to be more difficult to have that conversation. Um, at the same time, I'd expect Biden to be actually more hawkish with respect to, to China. So I think the, the possibility of a military confrontation seems more tangible to me in a Biden administration. Well, one, well, one reason why I, 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 I've thought about that is that he'll be um, hectored and assailed by the Republican right on China. And that one way of, you know, um, I mean, Biden's never seen a war he doesn't like or never found a, a reason to not use, to not try to out, be out, to be more hawkish than, you know, um, Republicans. And whenever, whenever a major issue of uh, military confrontation has come up in his whole career, I think. I saw some of his advertising, his uh, electoral advertising here. Um, and the, the initial round was very much like who has the, you know, who has the bigger fangs on China? Who's more anti-communist, Trump or or Biden, and, and you know, I mean, I think a lot of that was to uh, to respond to these like lo- like completely uh, out of touch claims that you know Biden equals socialism. So he had to kind of pull out his fangs and say, "No, actually, you know, I'll mm-hmm. be harder on China, this communist monster to the east." You know, at you know at the um, the on the the march to the cap to Capitol Hill a few days ago, I saw some people, they had um, signs and it was a picture. It was a cartoon. Well, no, a, a kind of, um, you know, um, adapted picture or whatever, but it was a picture of Mao's like um, head and, if, and Biden's face within it, you know, with, with um, right. Mao's like receding hairline thing and Biden's face <laughs> was in it. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's what. So that's what the Republican right is going to do. That's what the Trumpist element in, in the Republican right is going to um, assail him with. Yeah. So I can see that being assailed from the right. But I I think there's an appetite on the left to to push this human rights agenda 
and and mm-hmm. I can see that becoming um, a force for like you know CIA intervention in some way. Like I mean, I think um, the history of the CIA's involvement going back to like 1950 in Tibet is well documented, um, stirring the pot amongst um, you know t- Tibet secessionists essentially. the other way we can frame this question of um, can the United States make a U-turn is by looking at the five flawed assumptions of United States foreign policy thought that Mabubani identifies here at the end. And uh, the first of these is uh, whether the United States can even conceive of the idea of losing a struggle, whether that's economic or militarily, to a, to a rising geopolitical rival. Yeah. It can't. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's. I think that's the that's been the case uh, since the Second World War, right? I mean, it's it's been the preponderant power for so long now. Um, in in such a, I mean, it's not just a little bit of, uh, you know, not just a little bit more powerful, but I mean, like, uh, by orders of magnitude more powerful than the the rest of the world's militaries. I mean, combined. Yeah. So. I don't think they can see that happening. I mean, whether it's a question of economic competition, I think people are starting to realize that maybe a little bit more. But it's even it is difficult to conceive of um, what that really means. The United States taking a second seat when its military capacity is so much more uh, predominant or, or preponderant, mm-hmm. I should say. The the second flawed assumption. Uh, so we, we talked about this assumption that the United States can just not be number two. It can't lose. You know, it always wins. Uh, the second is that. China's political and economic system is just, uh, it's inevitable that it'll collapse. This is kind of connected to the first point that the United States has the best um, economy in the world, the best political system that's ever existed in world history. China is not that economic or political system, and therefore it is weaker and bound to collapse. And and I think this is probably a, as part and parcel of uh, the Cold War as well and, and the lessons learned from the Soviet Union's collapse. The United States already beat one communist regime. It's going to do it again. And that's kind of just a holdover from, you know, the end, the, the basically post-Soviet years. Yeah. And also the, the you can, another thing he brings up is the, um, the fact that the Chinese aren't engaged in an ideological struggle like the U.S. and USSR were during the Cold War. And that their policymakers are of a better cast of mind than in, in America because of the meritocratic, you know, nature of the CCP, which we'll talk about in other chapters. But um, he thinks that the Chinese are of a better ability to adapt right. to the um, to the um, to the strategic competition. And um, the third one is the issue. It's related to this. Related to intellectual resources, the use of R and D, and how how well it can be sort of. Um, how well of a synthesis that that can be applied to in their society, and it's at, the, at that on that um, issue he thinks China is also you know far far if not superior at this point it's so much it's so much more dynamic and so much um, better able to um, apply um, science and technology. And it has, of course, a better educated population. Yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, and and part of that assumption, you know, the flawed assumption is that the United States, just by virtue of having abundant resources, or at this particular moment in history, more resources military than the United than China, that it's bound to win. But um, mm-hmm. China, as we mentioned before, with 
some of the anti-access denial um, technologies. It's it can make use of uh, it can be more powerful defensively with much less um, less investment because this technology technological savvy is is compensating for um, or or can respond to that those offensive measures that cause yeah. overbloat in the military defense uh, American military defense. And and on that issue of um, you know sort of the intellectual resources of a country, uh, an American you know sort of uh, policy expert or whatever might say that um, well all those Chinese you know intellectuals or scientists are being trained at American universities, right? Right. And while that that's true, the best and brightest of China have you know on mass um, studied in America. The fact is that what what they do is they come back to China. And lead the research and development in their country, and have a, a huge amount of funding for you know free universities that um, stay at the cutting edge and of the frontiers of of um, scientific advancement um, throughout the world. And so they've been basically that's a basically adaptation strategy that keeps their cadres well educated, but it's also able to let that trickle down, as it were, to um, the rest of Chinese society. It doesn't just stay as a, as a matter of an elite, you know, sort of prerogative. That's right. Yeah. And then finally, his fourth and fifth flawed assumptions that I think are connected. The fourth is uh, an assumption of the political virtues of the United States, uh, the rule of law, the Constitution, and and connected to that, finally, that because of this, um, you know, that the Constitution is instilled with a concept of liberty, the rest of the world will naturally gravitate towards it. So the United States doesn't have to make any changes essentially to its system to adequately confront what is, in their minds, an inadequate or inferior system. Um, so it's it's kind of a done deal. This is the best system that's evolved in human history. The rest of the world will come running to it, and its alliances will stay true. Um, right. And so that assumption is, um, you know, um, shattered um, in the face of all of these macroeconomic indicators that have been in existence, basically, our whole lives, our entire lives has been, you know, basically, we've... we've Downwardly been, mobile. Uh, <laughs> downwardly mobile. Well, you haven't, I have been, but, you know, um, just the, the fact that, like, it's been such a, almost a common sense notion to me that um, you can't really, um, if you start at the bottom, you're not going to rise to the top. And, you know, throughout the book, Mawabani, um references figures like the fact that the... F- bottom 50% of the country have been, have had a steadily declining, um, amount of income, if not stagnant, then declining and certainly right now, um, declining and that, you know, of all, and that's, and that's the real form of American exceptionalism amongst the advanced capitalist world that America, um, is the, is the worst in this, um, metric also that it has the worst, it has the lowest percentage of people who start in the bottom 10% who make it to the top 10%. Right. So the fact that America is such an unequal country is um, something that counters, right, this all the American exceptionalist um, ideology that's part of our, our normal, the normal cast of mind in America. And he, and off in several chapters, right, Mababani references John Rawls, John Rawls. Yeah. And, um, he uses him to great effect. And the general's idea of the veil of ignorance is basically you, uh, the, the most, you could put it this way, the most just society is one in which, um, you would want to be born into if you couldn't choose exactly what social class you were a part of. 
So which society would give you the best chance to both enjoy all the substantive liberties and freedoms and give you the best chance of living your way of life um, and, uh, you know, living according to your own principles of way of life and stuff like that. Um, And also give you the best chance of social advancement. Right. And if, and at this moment, according to the principles of the veil of ignorance, um, I think you you and I would choose to live in China. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But, but of course the question is, oh, with the, you know, the spirit of liberty that's instilled in the constitution and democracy all having a voice, isn't it possible that we can rectify this situation by going to the ballot box? And even on this point, I mean, I think, congratulations, Mabubani, you're to the left of the DSA, because to quote him here, he says, the regular presidential and congressional elections don't really take away the effective power of the ruling elites. They only create the illusion that the people are in charge of their destiny. In reality, they are not. I mean, this is might as well quote yeah. Lenin here. Yeah. And another part he, and I think it's in the last, not the last chapter, but the, um, you know, the chapter the we'll talk about later, um, the assumption of virtue, right? He's, he, he, he even says something that is just so, I guess you'd call it black pills. He says something like the existence of a progressive left within the Democratic Party only strengthens the illusion that the, that America is, you know, reformable and that it has a, you know, it has an, has a, there's a progressive, um, trajectory to its historical development. And, uh, you know, that that's, he, that's, a you know, only makes this ideology more ironclad. All right. Well, on that point, uh, <laughs> should China become democratic? And I think that's the point. I mean, it's really he that quote I just gave at the end there is uh, in this in right right at the end uh, of the chapter. Um, he he dunks on democracy in America, and then he says, "Should China become democratic?" And chapter six is uh, basically a long way of saying, "No, why would it?" Look at the shithole that is America politically right now. And then on those indices that you mentioned before, in terms of the you know the bottom fifty percent. Uh, the United States is tr- truly exceptional in the downward mobility that's represented there. So um, China would be insane, I think. Uh, it, it's and, and I'm speaking I'm speaking personally, but also you know according to Mabubani, it would be it would be totally irrational to push for a democratic political structure. Um, and and th- the way that this chapter unfolds, the argument is is essentially that China uh, not only shouldn't become democratic. Uh, it should avoid doing so because the structure that currently has in place now uh, with the philosopher king Xi, uh, really, truly believes he's a philosopher king, uh, is doing three great public services to the world. Yeah. And and maybe you can take us through those, Mario. Well, the public services are, one is um, holding back the form of nationalism, which would, um, bait, which would necessarily... Um, show itself if um, if China was became more democratic. So that's the first one. The second one is um, that um, the com- the Chinese Communist Party um, is a responsible stakeholder in global affairs. It it um, makes uh, treaties and signs deals and sticks to them. Mm-hmm. And which in recent memory the United States hasn't done very well. And the third one is, um, oh, it shows and has a, it's it shows every intention of being a kind of um, rational actor, a, a rational actor, and and not and it's I wouldn't he says status quo power I wouldn't quite call it that, but um, it's not it's definitely not a revolutionary uh, f- you know force in the international system. 
It, and most importantly, it doesn't intervene in the affairs in the internal affairs of other countries. Yeah. Well, let's let's back up to that first thing you mentioned, which is the public good of preventing the nationalist dragon from being unleashed upon the world. And I think what he's acknowledging here is that there's a certain layer of the Chinese political elite that might want to act like a truculent Jacksonian or something like that. And and might, mm-hmm. if, if you can imagine the voices, uh, if there were a democratic system, the voices for, uh, you know, militarism might come to the fore. So you might have an actual, like it might become the beast that the United States believes it is already in the Spratly Islands or the Paracel Islands or something like that, and maybe even mm-hmm. more aggressive. But of course, this isn't the case. It's a projection. And the reason why the the that there's a, a certain level, well, an extreme level of political order is because she does act rationally and holds all of these pieces together, suppressing the nationalist or nationalism that might dictate a more aggressive posture with respect to neighbors um, and then the United States uh, vis-a-vis its, its uh, blue water Navy throughout the region. Yeah. And um, Mabubani references, you know, a kind of um, quip that the, the um, writer, uh, you know, who coins it, who has a piece called Thucydides trap. I forget if it's his name. It might be Allison. Uh, Graham um, Allison. He, yeah. Yeah. Graham Allison. Um, you know, wrote something like, you know, be careful if you want China to be um, like the United States. Don't don't encourage China to become like us because you might get a Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, who expanded around the area and used a big stick in um, his um, in his region. And um, so that's um, yeah. So that's the first you know public good that um, Mabubani. Um, thinks the Chinese Communist Party holds at bay, or, or at least the public good that um, the Chinese Communist Party performs for the rest of the world and America. Yeah, and I mean, he's talking about a public good. It's something that the United States benefits from as much as China internally. I mean, 1.1 billion voices or whatever uh, contending for a political dominance could be a pretty messy affair, and they're not going to tolerate that um, for good reason. And, yeah, and on this, and we're going to talk more about this issue with Mearsheimer, because Mearsheimer is of the opinion that you know, nationalism is basically the most uh, is really the most powerful ideological force of all the 20th century isms, and the fact that China has you know it's part of this you know part of its um, civilizational whatever mentality or its its um, I hate this word mindset yeah. is the fact that they're coming out of a hundred year period of humiliation, and so the you could say just as the United States has a reflex to try to shape the world in its image. China has a reflex to see the, how the West treats it as a kind of drive to humiliate it. And the, and if that is poked too hard, it can become a very um, bellicose force in a society. Yeah, but that's not to say that China hasn't flexed its muscle in, in certain cases, right? I mean, it, it does play pretty strong defense. Um, it's it, I, We're not trying to paint this picture of this like perfectly pacifist nation. It has its own national interests and it will defend them uh, when when it sees fit. Um, and I think you have a couple of examples you want to speak to here on um, the THAAD, um, what, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense, which was being placed, I believe, in South Korea, which was a big issue. Um, do, could you speak to that a bit? Well, they, you know, they respond with, in way, you could say, very much softer ways than the United States does um, when a country's don't do what it what it um, what it wants. Um, they use they slap light sanctions on South Korea. Obviously, the United uh, obviously China and South Korea have very strong economic ties. 
They um, suspended relations with Norway for a time after they gave the Nobel Peace Prize to a Chinese dissident. Mm -hmm. And they, of course, in relations with Taiwan, when when if an American um, delegate is sent there or if it appears that there's some new um, uh, agreement on weapons technology – the Chinese will shoot a, a missile over Taiwan. Yeah, they'll do things like that because it's uh, to establish a very clear red line that this is a th- that is that is the major issue of stoking that that sense of national humiliation when the United States does that and seems to be moving towards breaking the um, the Shanghai the 1979 Shanghai Agreement. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we could also we could talk about Hong Kong uh, in relation mm-hmm. to this. I think, which is protecting its. Um, now, I don't think Hong Kong is necessarily a military situation in the same sense that those other examples are with South Korea and the THAAD system or Taiwan and encroaching confrontation there by the U.S. But um, Hong Kong is really a question of the maintenance of political stability on the mainland. And if China were to just let the, you know, quote unquote, um, you know, pro-democracy movement get out of hand, it could have reverberations throughout the mainland and cause serious instability. So I think the the crackdown on the Hong Kong movement, including the, the 53 dissidents, if you want to call them that, uh, in this, this last round of, of um, arrests, um, I think they're totally warranted as a, as a measure of self-defense. Um, so, so this is another example, I think, where, yeah, you know, China will defend itself when appropriate. No, I mean, I, I think, you're, you know, you're right. They, there was a recent, yeah, recent um, slew of arrests. I think, yeah, I wonder if it was timed for the same, uh, at the, you know, to, to follow the announcement in the U.S. that we were going to arrest 50-odd people for, you know, um, invading the Capitol. Um, and it, it, and interrupting the um, the process of ratifying electoral votes, but um, they arrested a similar number of people, and um, that was all related to um, you know involvement at different at different levels, different scales of involvement amongst for these people um, in last year's Hong Kong protest, which became you know very violent. It was basically like you know a it was similar to the scale of disruption um, as actually it was less disruption, I'd say probably than the um, protests over the summer um, led by BLM and stuff. I mean, there was a lot of destruction of property. There was violence. There were deaths. There were people lit on fire really. Uh, and then of course, a big aspect of it was um, really kind of, um, Pro pro colonial sentiment. Oh yeah, British flags they, all they, over the place. Yeah. yeah, when they broke into the um, Hong Kong Parliament, they put the um, old British Hong Kong flag up with the Union Jack yep. and a, this other emblem on onto to the lower um, right of it. And uh, not to mention t- Trump flags as well. I mean, begging for intervention. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the to just imagine what that would be like in our own country to have. Um, protesters do something similar and perform similarly iconoclastic um, types of uh, um, dis- destructive protest is something that Americans just sort of you know flippantly regard as oh look at them they're they're um, they're marching for freedom <laughs> right but it's a it's a huge poke in the eye to um, any country and especially to a rising power on, on a critical note with with how China is handling. Um, the Hong Kong situation in general, I think 
Mabubani points this out, and I, I just wanted to voice my own opinion on it, which is there is a felt need in Hong Kong among young people um, to improve their material standard of living right now, especially on the housing situation. I mean, I think uh, price per square foot is even more expensive than New York City, which is hard to imagine. But there are a lot of young people who, you know, just people of all ages who can't afford to live there. And I think, um, you know, China would benefit, uh, you know, in terms of soft power, benefit from investing public, you know, public investiture into uh, public housing and and really taking the wind out of the sails of the tycoons or or, you know, uh, I think being a, a, uh, a you know, a force for. Uh, stabilizing force, stabilizing force against the tycoons, which is which which is partly fueling the unrest in Hong Kong. It's not purely political. There's also a material um, uh, motivation as well. So I think I, I think uh, China has maybe let the tycoons run a bit wild there in Hong Kong as this kind of offshore uh, large real estate yeah, tycoon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, special, not a special economic zone, but essentially, I mean that it's like a, you know a, an island of uh, an enclave of, of financial you know, capital. Te- yeah, exactly. And um, you know the very same point that Mahbubani makes is something that um, Danny Haifong, um, who writes for the Black Agenda Report, people could probably have mm-hmm. seen him on Jimmy Dore and um, other places. Um, who's a, a left wing writer? I think he's half Chinese, and he. Um, you know, pointed to that very same thing about a year ago, that really what's exacerbating or what's accelerating the conflict in what was exa- accelerating the conflict in um, what was accelerating the protests in um, Hong Kong were the, was the, basically the high rates of, or the high costs of living and um, the general sort of dispossession of younger people, which it's in itself is a tinderbox, which everybody, all, all millennials listening can relate to in current American situation. Yeah. As Mabubani puts it, he says, if Beijing had instead uh, invested 1.7 million units of public housing, uh, there would probably have been fewer or no public demonstrations in Hong Kong. So, um, yeah. Well, so, so Mario, you, we've spent some time talking off offline about the, uh, the color revolutions. And I think, um, Hong Kong, the protests in Hong Kong kind of have a flavor of that. Um, do you think that's fair to say? And I mean, what are the, what are the stakes? Um, no, totally. Yeah. I think that Americans have to tend to, we've become so used to viewing, um, any uprising in another country according to this basic form and pattern, or sometimes it's a script. Sometimes it's truly is a truly like kind of CIA, um, um, funded and, and, and um, led kind of um, script. But it, it's the basic pattern is large-scale um, protests of a kind of amorphous ideological kind against a particular ruler, a particular um, often autocratic um, leader, but that have the pretty radical demand for that person being defenestrated or removed from government and and accelerating or um, creating a kind of, if not general strike, mass mobilization for that demand. And um, that tends to send governments or regimes into a kind of crisis mode. And that's a form of, that's sort of the a major step in the, the type of pressure that the United States begins to exert diplomatically, sometimes um, even militarily, as happened in um, states um, during the Arab Spring in the Middle East, and um, is a you could say one of the 
sort of crisis initiation modes that um, the United States often um, gets involved in with other countries. And in all, all sorts of ways, the Hong Kong protests fit that script. And mm-hmm. I think, and one of the things Mababani brings up is that, you know, that the, the Chinese are very, are very, are very wise to this, this policy and this script and not only recognize the, um, the um, fingers of the United States in, in their, in their involvement in, this stuff around the world, also in Hong Kong, but um, they also um, have a pretty, a pretty um, systematic or a pretty um, thought out response to the um, what the effects are, or, or rather, they have a pretty um, you know reasoned um, disagreement with the the even the very notion of these color revolutions because if you really look at the balance sheet of them. Many of them have been totally counterproductive and unsuccessful. Some of them have led to one autocrat being led, being replaced by another. Mm-hmm. Others have been led to the, have led to civil wars and the complete dissolution of the states of, of, um, some of these societies. And some have been successful. And Mahabani reflects on the fact that the ones that are most successful were usually, you know, like say a country like Poland after um, Solidarity towards the end. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Towards the end of the um, of the Cold War, that um, were based on basically really still, even if there was Soviet control there, there were very stable societies with very well educated populations, something close to the middle class that serves as the you know the social support of a modern society. Whereas when they when you go to countries in like Central Asia and you start pushing for color revolutions, it just leads to the replacement of one autocrat with another. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to ask you again: um, Should China become democratic? I mean, I think in general, as a general value, I think it should. But I think it the China, it, it, it's wise for the Chinese to want to do that slowly, and not want to do it under American auspices, because the Americans have a pretty bad track record of accelerating the the um, the chaotic um, dynamics that can be involved in. Um, a democratic transition. Okay, moving into chapter seven, the assumption of virtue. I think a lot of the themes in this chapter are connected to what we just spoke about. It it's an argument for undercutting um, this notion that the United States is number one, and there is a natural attraction that the rest of the world will have towards its political and economic system. And more pointedly, one that China has to develop along to have an orderly, successful society. Um, And this is where I think the focus on inequality and despair in America uh, comes to the the, the front of the argument. Um, And and Mabubani starts to compare. Actually, if if you do the Rawls test, you might actually decide you want to be in... Uh, born in China versus the United States, uh, especially if you you would like to. I mean, the test is that you move up uh, cross class or um, increase in your economic well being, or you might you know might want to just be born in China because you have a less chance, you know, a uh, smaller chance of being incarcerated. <laughs> Mabubani throughout this chapter cites a number of important political science papers um, on the role of wealth inequality. My favorite of them is the uh, is it Gillins and Page or Gillins and Page? I'm not sure. Uh, they're Princeton, I think, uh, Princeton political scientists who 
uh, basically proved quantitatively that the United States is an oligarchy. <laughs> it's, it's basically that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it's, you know, it's one of these arguments, you, know, you hear this a lot around like the dinner table with family, you know, the United States really isn't as cracked up as it used to be, but this is like a really hardcore argument of that from uh, mm-hmm. a political and uh, you know, a scientific background. Uh, or a scientific basis. And, um, you know, Mabubani is basically saying, using these arguments to, to, to say, look, if the United States can't come to terms with the fact that it is not as virtuous as it believes, it can never have a strategy that will match the, uh, ge- geopolitical task at hand. Yeah. Um, that, that piece by Gillens and Page is great. Um, I read it, um, I don't know, a few, few days ago. Um, and, you know, it basically, it takes on the different views of um, American democracy, whether or not it's majoritarian, um, a majoritarian democracy, whether it's um, a, a pluralist democracy, it's a biased pluralism, um, or it's a, um, I forget the other ones, but it's basically the idea of whether or not elites decide all policy issues, or whether or not there is um, a place for the majority of the population who are not rich to influence policy. And the, the conclusion after looking at a pool of like, I don't know, 10,000 like laws and um, acts of legislation and comparing and looking at the, um, the preferences of um, economic elites versus people of average income, it's found that um, basically that there's hardly any, con- there's hardly any ability of people of average income to affect um, legislation to their benefit, or you know, as they as they would like, unless it act, unless it perfect, unless it coincides with the um, desires and um, interests of um, economic elites. Mabubani cites that paper. He doesn't really go in 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 depth on it, but where he does, I mean, I think as a a related topic, he does speak at length on Citizens United, which which was the, you know the Supreme Court decision that. Basically treats uh, political donations as a form of speech, um, and it it essentially broke down any barrier of private life influencing or private corporations influencing electoral outcomes. Um, and and this is Mabubani really really dwells on this as the uh, precipitating event of taking political power out of the hands of um, an, any ordinary person in the United States. Um, and he essentially calls it legalized corruption, which I think is, you know, an adequate way to put it. I think when when the Supreme Court ruled on this, um, corporations included um, unions as well. But as we know, the round of Supreme Court decisions on unions' ability to, uh, well, anyway, public unions' ability to collect uh, 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 dues has basically gutted the unions of, ev- of of even having this kind of political influence. Uh, not to mention that they throw their weight behind a Democratic Party in almost every instance, which uh, is just one element of this duopoly that has been shaped to be uh, part of the you know fabric of political life here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's um, you know that's one of the sort of s- sad things about this recent um, disruption of proceedings at Capitol Hill by Trump supporters is that they you know they did something sort of militant and uh, (laughs) captures the attention of the spectacle at a completely like, you know, decrepit, sclerotic legislative process that um, during the time of a pandemic that can barely um, 
you know, agree to giving people $2,000 checks after like practically a year in lockdowns and after decimating small businesses and, um, you know, creating huge amounts of, un- making, putting 15 million people out of work. They were simply, they, they, they can, o- they only did that for some billionaire real estate tycoon. Yeah, right. And now anybody who, now they're going to try to construe any disruption of, um, the American Congress as a kind of form of domestic terrorism. Yeah, yeah. I it mean, it's a horrible precedent for the ability of the left to intervene and um, show the the just the sort of bankruptcy of American political process. But maybe that's just an aside on on this issue. I don't think but so. It, I it, think it it's totally relevant. I mean, uh, Mababani talks about neo feudalism. He describes uh, not just the United States, but the Western, you know, the West and Western co- capitalist democracies as basically being. Uh, you know they they would make uh 18th century european aristocrats pretty jealous i mean you're talking about like uh you know this this uh you know like larper attack on uh you know the capital is like oh in the name of uh you know like this this real estate tycoon yeah it's like that's it looks like serfdom or something and and you know we 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 never well, not we, but the way this gets framed isn't typically in terms of economic desperation, but rather as like these guys are what well, they are wing nuts, but it's like it's just that they are uh you know, they're evil, that they're, you know, racist, whatever it is, like this popular they're fascist. Yeah, that yeah. they're fascist. I mean so there now, were the, fascists the, there, but like that's yeah, that's sort of the the knee jerk reaction is that this is just the fascist disease that can be put down by um a democratic president or by the police repressing them. Um, and we can just kind of, you know, or take them off of Twitter, whatever it is, you know, take away their voice and it'll just go away. Yep. And now, um, interestingly enough, the, uh, you know, uh, the white working class, which is the you know most numerous demographic of the working class in the United States, um, now has a symbolic status of uh, welfare queens. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is. Uh, I mean, that just shows how, you know, I mean, it's like a, there's this weird involuted right wing, right, right moving direction of of everything even even um if there's a sort of you know cloak of liberal progressivism around identity issues but there's no real coalition forming in order to take on the major economic issues that confront us and um it's it's really sad and reading this book right now after after those events is um it it just rings it rings all the more true compared to the first time I read this book. Yeah, yeah, and I mean coming back to you know framing it in terms of uh, China and you know how how the ordinary Chinese citizen must look at this. I mean, it really it's in the interest of the Ch- the Chinese bureaucracy to push this narrative. Like, okay, democracy, okay, uh, you know, capitalism. You know, you know, look at this economic system. Look at the politics here. Is this really what you want? I mean, look, we've 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 put the lid on the coronavirus. Uh, you know, we've brought so many people out of poverty. Um, she will, you know, she in in his uh, January his New Year speech to I guess it was to the world really tried to highlight these as progressive acts in the name of all of humanity. And it's 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 kind of I mean, however much you take that as a you know like a genuine uh, expression of uh, you know the CCP's ideology or uh, worldview. It's not. This it, is very. It's qualitatively different than what you'll hear from politicians in the United States, and also it just looks completely different. I mean, it's 
it's orderly, it's stable, it's uh, blah blah blah. I'm rambling on now. No, I think you're right. I mean, um, another thing we didn't touch on in the you know the previous chapter was the 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 way the West viewed Xi Jinping's um, um, ascension to power and his anti-corruption drive was both a kind of you know it was a power grab, sure. It was also truly an anti-corruption drive, and it was also a strategic maneuver to reorient the, the country's um, economy to take care of this, you know, intellectual property theft problem, and at least, or at least, streamline the regulation of it. And um, there's also a whole number of important strategic aspects of it in terms of. Um, you know, cybersecurity stuff we can't get into now because I, I think neither of us are really well equipped enough to, to deal with it properly. But it seems like um, an aspect of dealing with intelligence breaches that the United States had done in China that was part of his anti-corruption. Oh, that's drive. right. Yeah. And um, it's very hard to imagine anything, any sort of similar anti-corruption process going on in the United States. Because, and this is another thing Mababani brings up, is that because all of these things you referenced earlier from Citizens United to the whole lobbying apparatus that exists in the United States, all of it is considered legal. Right. So so Americans don't, I mean, everybody recognizes rich people make all the decisions at a kind of gut level, but um, there is, doesn't seem to be a, um, it doesn't really cut against or doesn't really um, cause people to stop believing in um American exceptionalist notions. That basically captures that chapter. I think yeah. he really draws out the economic desperation that ordinary Americans are facing, and you know, this economic framing I think is is important for for uh, you know comparative reasons, and and for people who may not be familiar with um, the successes of China economically over the last 10, 15 years. I think it really shows that the drive towards democracy, or you know, that that passion you hear you know, left liberals speak about is really misplaced and could be very dangerous, not just for China, but for uh, the world's stability. So I really appreciate this chapter. I mean, this book, we basically covered um, these first seven chapters are really the the, the meat of the argument, um, answering that, yes, China has won, in fact, will probably continue to do so as it, as it overtakes the United States economically in the next, um, he projects out 20 years, but it's probably more like 10 if if we yeah. if we look at updated economic data, which we're not mm-hmm. experts to speak on, but I think it's you know it's interesting to see this as being spoken about in such accelerated terms by serious economists. So we decided that democracy is no good. Scrap it. China shouldn't become democratic. Who needs it? I think that's basically that's basically Mabubani's position. Not not in the long term. I think he has an openness like anyone in um, you know the the capitalist think tank world that China should eventually become democ- democratic. But there's not an explicit call for that in this book, and he makes very good you know, arguments as to why China right now should not be de- democratic. One of them being, do you want the Chinese Teddy Roosevelt? You know, do you want the the Chinese Trump? I mean, then you really have to worry about 
uh, the, the, the Paracel Islands or these other areas in the South and East China Seas where um, there could be a question of territorial expansion. Or that the dragon of Chinese nationalism would rear its head, that sort of argumentation. Mm-hmm. But um, more, more on where I would come from on, on that perspective, though, as to why China shouldn't become democratic is – well, one, th- there's... And of course, when he a, says democratic, he means liberal, what's at stake is liberal democracy. Yeah, well, to be cl- yes, exactly, liberal democracy, right? I mean, he's not talking about, uh, you know, workers' democracy. He's talking about, you know, a Western form of capitalist democracy. Party that, competition, basically. Yeah, party competition. And so there's not, there's not an impulse for that from the bureaucracy for good reasons. One, it has a material advantage, a material benefit from having control over what's essentially still a command economy with some capitalist features, some capitalist activity in special economic zones, Hong Kong obviously being a hub for capitalist finance. Um, And then the other part of it is China looks to the West and goes, why the hell would we want democracy? It's a, it's a mess. I mean, it's, and they, they can sell that to the population and, and who, right. I mean, it's like, you look at, you look at what happened at the Capitol, and it's like I don't know what your your joke about it is. The LARPers when, or whatever. No, when, yeah, when you said it's a mess just now, it reminded me of, of Trump talking about Jeb Bush. He's a mess. That's, that's what I just thought about. <laughs> I was, yeah, well, I should have done my Trump impression. But anyway, you, you know what I'm saying there. So I I think this there's a surface level feature of the conflict that we've been talking about this entire time, which is democracy and capitalism versus state control and planned economics. Right. And I think we can have a debate to what extent. China is still a planned economy. I think in large part it is. It's impor- it's an important feature that state enterprise is a major part of its economy. Mm-hmm. And that conflict, I think, plays into the centerpiece of discussion between Kishore Mababani and John Mearsheimer, which was held, I think, last year, uh, about the beginning of the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, maybe April or May or so, uh, at the Center for Independent Studies. I think this is in Australia. Anyway, um, so they have this debate and they start framing this conflict um, from two angles. One really big one, which is the conflict of grand strategy between China and the United States. And one point that comes up is, will this will this competition turn into a military conflict? And I want to get into that a little later. But first, what's really interesting, and it plays into the book a bit more, uh, in the later part of this book, how other nations will choose is the question of how other countries throughout Asia will ally with the United States or China in the case of this inevitable conflict. So I just, I want you to go through what that debate is between Mearsheimer and Mabubani and where they both land. Well, um, I'm going to, you know, take things both from Mabubani, the chapter eight, how will other countries choose in um, Mabubani's book, Has China Won?, Comparing it to Mearsheimer, the last chapter in um, this sort of revised edition of Mearsheimer's The Tragic Great Power Politics, and also mixing some things that I kind of remember from their actual discussion, which was extremely cordial and, um, you know, um, amicable despite their vehement disagreement and um, did very yeah. different perspectives about this. You could say basically Mabubani is sanguine or optimistic about um, the role that economic interdependence will play in um, bringing countries in the region towards um, uh, greater cooperation with China and see the interests of more prosperity 
as mm-hmm. more important than um, basically balancing against China with the help of the United States. Whereas Mearsheimer, from a you know realist um, systems anarchic system perspective, sees that the state, the countries in um, the, um, in the South, especially Southeast Asia, but in Asia generally, will look with great trepidation at a rising China and welcome aid and assistance from the United States in a balancing coalition. That's the mm-hmm. basic parameter. And you could say that, um, I mean, at least, you know, for my part, before, you know, go, sort of going down the line, I'm much more sympathetic to Mearsheimer's explanation, uh, his, you know, way of thinking about it. And especially as a, as a sort of, as an explanation, strictly as an explanation, as a way of understanding causality in the interstate system. But mm-hmm. that doesn't, but then obviously, I, and we'll talk about this afterwards, you and I are going to probably disagree on what Mearsheimer thinks the United States actual policy should be. It seems as though Mearsheimer ever, uh, ever, uh, with a, ever a tragic sense also um, proposes that the United States really does need to counter China in the area and and recognizes how disastrous that could be and proposes that there's conflict is um, likely to happen in the nearer term than, than in the longer term. Mm-hmm. But so starting out, um, Abu Bani um, basically you could say focuses on a few countries in, in the P- Asia Pacific, some of them um, long-term historical allies of the U.S., others um, more in a more sort of nebulous position. Um, those are Australia, Japan, Singapore, Vietnam, and and the ASEAN countries, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and Russia. But mm-hmm. um, so, looking at Australia, he thinks that um, it's a good example of how um, allying with the United States is going to cost countries in the region a great deal. It'll lose a lot from security competition between China and the U.S. because you know it's it's a longtime ally of the U.S. It's part of the Five Eyes. Um, and there's basically no question that it about whether or not it's going to go with the U.S. Well, it does a, t- a ton amount of a ton of amount of trade with right. with China as well. I mean, it outsizes trade with the United States by a factor of a couple a couple x. I mean, I mean, it's, it's like it's, it's 174 billions in trade with China and only 44 billion with the U.S. There you go. Yeah. Now, in order for the United States to, you know, sweeten the the pill, basically, of um, joining it and balancing China, the United States is going to, it's likely the United States is going to have to um, provide aid or some other sort of incentive to um, compensate for this loss of, um, of business with China. There's also the matter of, this is more just sort of off to the side, is the um, issue of Huawei and the use of and, it, and this, you know, telecom giant's um, business around the world. There's been controversy about um, Chinese IT being installed in European countries and the, the fact that that would make data sent and stored um, susceptible to infiltration by Chinese intelligence. And so the United States says it can't um, allow that to spread in, other, in, in allied countries. Um, right. This is something that only the United States is allowed to do to other countries. Yeah. And Mabubani brings up, you know, the um, idea, the issue that EU has a big interest, you know, despite the fact that the United States is telling the EU what telecommunications business to do, 
Um, mm-hmm. The EU has a big incentive to work with China on development in Africa because of this huge youth bulge that you know is sure to come in the it's sure to come in the next decades. It needs a strategic partner to basically manage this huge demographic transition. Well, there, there's another point there, which is I think you're getting at the Belt and Road Initiative, which is pumping a, a quite sizable amount of money in the form of low interest loans to African countries for development like this. Uh, I know there's a rail line that runs from uh, Djibouti through Ethiopia, and uh, this is great for the economy of those countries. It would also be great for uh, the youth bulge, as you say, because there could be some economic development there, which would be compelling to keep people who are leaving for uh, more industrialized nations in Europe, and they could have jobs throughout Africa that are built on the basis of the infrastructure that BRI is providing. So I think there's a natural point of economic allyship or alliance Mm -hmm. that Europe may have with China, but this is something that we wouldn't expect to see develop naturally given the pressure from the United States, which we've already seen in the last few weeks, we've mentioned Sullivan's tweet saying we want to counsel, you know, uh, consult with you before you create these deals with China. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously going to be pressure from the Biden administration to say, you know, hold your horses there. So I, I think that's what you were getting at is uh, BRI is one of these initiatives that might sweeten the pot for Europe to rethink how it's approaching China. Yeah, and other types of infrastructure and, you know, f- um foreign direct investment into Africa. I mean, in total, I think China's level of investment in Africa is $188 billion, whereas the U.S. is $53 billion. And so, you know, a big question, um, you know, going forward is going to be, will the United States use its, um, you know, control of European countries and its military, continued military, I guess, prowess or Af- basically its, its strategic command in Africa to... Um, to put a halt to Chinese development and, you know, therefore the socioeconomic and human development of, of that continent. You know, Mamubani basically thinks that what will probably come up in the near term is European countries will um, try, try their best to work with China and go to, um, you know, all of the um, fora in China of, you know, African countries um, for development projects. And that'll be mm-hmm. a bit, that'll be a big sort of diplomatic stage um, in the coming decades. So let's let's um, let's take a step back and try to clarify the lines of disagreement between Mearsheimer and Mabubani on this, because I think it's worth worth asking where do they stand with respect to how these alliances may play out. It sounds like Mabubani has this assumption built into kind of this cultural or civilizational argument that the economic interpenetration of the ASEAN countries and China's economy plus their cultural affinities will make for an organic alliance that can counterbalance the U.S. as China rises. Whereas Mearsheimer, on the other hand, is a hardcore realist. He calls himself a realist par excellence. He says, actually, that doesn't matter. None of that matters. What we need to look at is the fact that there's not this night cop watching over all of the affairs of international actors in the interstate system. There's going to be rivalry between them, despite the fact that they may have these cultural affinities. Is that basically the right set of arguments that distinguishes the two thinkers? Mearsheimer's explanation you know, basically sticks to um, the um, Asia-Pacific. Um, he thinks that the structure of um, international relations there um, will demand that um, states balance against China. And it's entirely, he completely rejects this sort of 
you know, what we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later is this cultureless, this sort of Asian cultural horizon that is a basis mm-hmm. for not only a kind of, you could say, a different way of thinking that emphasizes social harmony or whatever, but also um, a shared cultural heritage between India, China, and Japan. All of these are things that have not precluded war between those countries in the past. So it's <laughs> right. Um, it's hard to understand why one would put so much emphasis on that. Nevertheless, Mearsheimer thinks that um, there still are plenty of areas or uh, other bases of co- flashpoints. Yeah. No, not flashpoints. Areas of cooperation between chi- say oh, China sorry. and the United States. Say about climate or about um, other sort of you know either prestige issues or. Things that are, occur at the United Nations that don't affect the the, the core strategic situation, um, but and for that reason, Mearsheimer doesn't pay any attention to it. Mearsheimer's whole framework is being able to try to predict war, Sim- you know, mm-hmm. purely and simply that. You know, going down the the list further, let's say going to Japan, um, you know, we can see clearly that um, Japan has done its utmost to strengthen um, its relationship with the United States both in the Obama presidency um, and even, you know, sort of awkwardly in the, during the Trump presidency too. Um, there are a bunch of reasons for that. One is, you know, Japan is militarily weak. It has historic wounds between China and um, – there are historic wounds between China and Japan. Um, Taiwan was once annexed by Japan, so there's an issue there. 14 million Chinese died during the Japanese occupation of China. And, you know, the something that I, I don't think Mabani brought up, but is, you know, the fact that you know, the United States really just sort of um, can take Japan for granted as a strategic partner. I think that when Nixon was negotiating the, um, you know, the sort of recalibration of relations with China, they didn't keep Japan in the loop at all. You know, and here Mabani thinks that... Um, Japan could provide an exemplar of a kind of form of democratic transition for China. And this is also, I think, a kind of form of wishful thinking. I mean, he thinks it provides an example because it's it's been a relatively a, a stable one-party form of democracy. The LDP has ruled for, I don't know, like 95% of, um, you know, modern Japan's history. But um, I don't really think that's a, a viable idea. It's also to me it sounds ahistorical also because it seems to forget or just wipe off the the record that the United States had to literally destroy the state of Imperial Japan before it was rebuilt without the right to a military. All of its sovereignty was taken away and rebuilt mm-hmm. on the basis of a democratic capitalist framework by the United States essentially. So as a model, that seems seems like a, a an unwise political framing. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, the other thing I don't like about his arguments around Japan is that he makes a very although to, although strong one, one point about that is you know I guess you could say there's not not to get too much in the weeds of the history of it, but they they sort of allowed their that class of uh, ruling class to remain and that zaibatsu system of industrial powerhouses and magnates basically became the, the ruling class in the next regime but yeah yeah point. no i i agree i mean to uh, that i think is is even even stronger against mabubani's position yeah. on this and the other thing is he makes this he makes this argument that it's in china's interest that japan remain a strong ally of the united states i wanted to ask you what you thought about that formulation um 
his his basic thought really his ba- no, his basic thought is if Japan weren't an ally of the United States, it would go it alone. It would rebuild its military. It would become a nuclear power, and it would become a serious threat to China without this mediation yep. He's from saying, the United so States. So Mahabani's basic point then is like it, by by it staying close to the United States, it means um, a country near China isn't fully militarized. Is idea right, and that's why he thinks it's in its interest. Um, it, it it is in in that sense, but it's also a threat to China in the other sense that. I mean, he's downplaying. So, Matt Mabubani, as 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 we're learning, you know, as we're going through this debate, we're learning he downplays the military factor yeah. a lot. And he, and, and so of, he doesn't see. Yeah, and of course, ahead, um, it having nuclear weapons means that it can pretty quickly turn those into ICBMs. Any yeah, any country yeah. with you know nuclear power can do that um, relatively quickly. I see what you're doing. You're trying to get in the lane already about the uh, clandestine the, balancing. The, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. we'll save that for a little while later, but. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you on Japan, but I just wanted to give a little context on how his downplaying of the military factor plays into how he views some of these alliances and, um, you know, cultural or sorry, national interplay in the interstate system. Yeah. And I mean, and the fact that this book is written in 2018 and he doesn't, despite, you know, very well reasoned arguments and at least, you know, in my opinion, um, in the earlier chapters, this book written in 2018 doesn't really have much of a reflection on the actual behavior of Japanese policymakers and different presidents from it was uh, Aso, somebody else, and then Shinzo Abe, how, how mm-hmm. the, the extent to which um, Japanese have tried to you know, preserve the relationship with America, how, how closely they worked with, with Obama to um, you know, ratify TPP. Um, and, you know, basically, you know, do whatever they could to ensure that they had um, support of the Americans. I think also another thing, I'm not sure if it was Abe or Aso, but, you know, re, um, um, renegotiated um, and renegotiated troops in Okinawa, something very unpopular, especially in Okinawa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not even reflected in, in Mabubani's, um, you know, final chapter. And this is all stuff that clearly points, you know, towards how correct Mearsheimer's analysis is that the basically states are going to begin to cling towards the United States to balance against China. And it's especially the case in Japan. On the other hand, I mean, I think there is a lot to be said in Mabubani's argument that there's more economic connections between these countries to an extent that didn't exist between the Soviet Union and its region of influence. Totally. That's so, absolutely true. So, so I think that is a, is a big part of his argument that this isn't like the civilizational conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States, which informs Mearsheimer's great power politics mm-hmm. framework, right? So I think that kind of, that kind of does have a compelling point there that there won't be as much of a risk of military conflict because the economic links between the ASEAN countries, China, Australia and China are two, as we mentioned before, it's, you know, this trade with between Australia and China is 4x what it is with the United States. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take a lot to convince Australia to take one side or the other in the security conflict. So there is something to that argument. And I just wonder if Mm -hmm. if you found that compelling. I know you side with Mearsheimer a bit more, but we're not trying to say Mabubani is is an idiot or something. No, 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 not at all. Yeah, I mean, there there is a point to what he's saying. No, I mean, he, he, to that point, um, 
it's absolutely true. You could never have imagined this level of economic integration in NATO with the Soviet Union, right? I mean, so it's hard to imagine right. a similar balancing coalition of such um, um, strength and whatever kind of command and control kind of uh, structure and security umbrella like NATO in a the Asia Pacific. But and Mearsheimer, of course, recognizes this, and he he basically says that that's because. In Europe, this was a situation of bi of um, balanced bipolarity, which is basically a situation two great powers are matched head to head, and there's a cordon um, of separation Center, yeah. that um, basically creates a, a great deal of stability and predictability in the actions of these two great powers and their allies. Whereas the the period now, um, as China is rising in the Asia Pacific. He's defining as um, unbalanced multipolarity, which is generative of more conflict because the um, the equilibrium between powers is just is so is less defined. The multipolarity generates higher um, probabilities of conflict as states um, test each other's powers and alliances um, shift. That's going to generate more chances of conflict. And that's a big reason why Mearsheimer thinks conflict in the near term is more likely. And so then going down the line, you know, further, um, a country that China has um, had a, a border, a recent deadly border dispute with is India. And... Um, Mabubani treats it um, much of this discussion um, in terms of the interpersonal relationships between Modi and Xi Jinping and how, how much right. time they spent together, you know, whatever, three years ago. Um, and the um, this is thinks that th they should find a way to um, come to an agreement on the Belt and Road Initiative as um, it passes through Pakistan. But this is a clear instance or a clear um, region where um, I think Mearsheimer's theory is, is really borne out because India refuses to participate in Belt and Road, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, because um, of Chinese and Pakistani relations. China wants to build a railroad through Pakistan-occupied part of Kashmir. That's um, right. And the China-Pakistan economic corridor is something that India looks at with great trepidation and it wants to block. Um, also, um, India didn't join the um, RCEP agreement, um, and this is an indication. This is something where Mahbubani thinks that's not pragmatic because you get so much economic development and trade with China out of it. But it's clearly also an in instance where I think Mearsheimer is correct that security concerns trump um, economic ones. You can't if you can't survive, you can't prosper. So. Um, you know, another dimension too that just underscore the 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 the, the role of the of unbalanced multipolarity in the region is the fact that the United States is still nominally in Afghanistan. It's one of the largest um, air American air bases in in Bagram in Afghanistan, and this is something that definitely worries China. I think China, you know, earlier on during the um, American occupation of Afghanistan. The Chinese had some economic investment in Afghanistan, but because of the corruption and continued violence, that, you know, um, was whittled down. 
but China is of course very worried about um, the um, ability of the Taliban, which seemed to is going to inherit um, the country if the United States leaves, or at least already has much of the country and is in negotiations with um, the United States. But China is worried about anti-Chinese Islamic militants leaking out from Afghanistan, and so you know the the calibration of Chinese relations with this successor Taliban regime, and and ha- making sure that they ensure that Uyghur militants don't you know leak into um, China to support separate a separatist movement is something that could you know um, set off a conflict between the U.S. between India um, and it, and China is going to use its relations with Pakistan to try to, um, you know, ensure a beneficial outcome in that relationship. And I think that, you know, China's fears in regard to this are very legitimate. There have been, you know, Uyghur uh, Islamic militants who've tried to come back to China after having fought in Syria. And it's legitimate because the United States has a storied history of, you know, generation ago, two generations ago, and, you know, more recently of supporting Islamic militants, um, both in Central Asia and also in Syria. So it's a real concern. Yeah. And and I think maybe we can say a few more, a few more words about the Uyghur situation in China without opening up a can of worms. But Mm -hmm. the first thing is, I mean, obviously, we're not just going to whitewash this and say, oh, it's just go over, you know, this, what's happening with these re-education programs or whatever is, we're indifferent to it. We do have, you know, thoughts about that, but it's, as far as, you know, the way the United States is using um, the the camps or whatever, we, and it's difficult to say what's really happening because so much of the press in the U.S. is tinged by this humanitarian interventionist mm-hmm. thrust that it's difficult to say if some of it is propaganda, if it's for this human rights tilt towards intervention, or if, if some of it is reality. And there is a there is a reality to the security concerns that China has. And it really matters where you come down on defending the Chinese state, what your attitude will be, what's happening in Xinjiang. And I think it's it's unfortunate, but at the same time, this isn't the sort of thing you can just have a position on and expect, oh, you know, I can just say there's this, you know, genocide happening in in Xinjiang and 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 make these appeals to the United States for doing something about it without facing the consequences in a real way, which would be the United States running roughshod over <laughs> China's sovereignty, mm-hmm. which it has done in previous cases. There have been pl- there have been yeah. instances going back to 1950 or so where there were Tibetan militants funded by the CIA to try to lead a secessionist movement there as well. So really what what you say about the situation matters. And if you're making these calls on the human rights, you know, uh, virtues of the United States, you're really asking for intervention and some leverage against the Chinese state and its sovereignty. Yeah. So I think it's a dangerous position. At the same time, we're not indifferent to what's happening. The idiocy or the, the heavy, heavy-handedness of the Chinese bureaucracy has come down on the population in a way that is not in its favor, winning people over to the modernization uh, of Chinese development in industry. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's obviously, um, a, a product of Han chauvinism, but at the same time, there is a very, sh- there is a very real security concern there 
And, and I, I come at it from the perspective of defending uh, China's sovereignty and defending the Chinese state against U.S. intervention. I think that's ultimately what this situation could explode into. Yeah, I, I think I basically agree. I mean, I've spent plenty of hours trying to find good material on this, and it's very hard to find something that isn't funded by USAID or the National Endowment for Democracy or, or you know, I've found some stuff on from the gray zone where they just show how, how to what extent so many um, publications and journalistic accounts rely on a couple of evangelical, you know, kind of super anti-Chinese um, sources. You know, and there's all kinds of things one needs to consider when you want to assess these claims of genocide. I mean, one is now we're going down the rabbit hole, but you know, no, one yeah, is like no. we opened it up. How much? Usually, in a place where there's genocide, you're going to see a lot of people fleeing to neighboring countries. I would think, if it's, I mean, there's, there's, then there's the issue of what are we talking about when we say genocide? Are we talking about cultural assimilation? That's a, for some people, that's a form of genocide. If you're an extreme cultural nationalist um, and, a, and, in fact, a Uyghur separatist, you might think that if uh, attempts to um, assimilate Uyghurs into, you know, Chinese society while they allowing them to have their own religion, but maybe um, promulgating certain laws like, you know, uh, r- rules about family life or about, about the um, treatment of women that, you know, some Islamic radicals won't agree with. There's all kinds of complicated aspects to the story that I, I know I'm not capable of definitively, like, you know, talking about or confidently, you know, um, coming to a conclusion about. But I think that um, we in the West will see any, we, we will probably see any echo of re-education camp, any echo of the Maoist form of ideological uh, conversion as automatically the worst form of totalitarianism. And I think there might be ways in which, while there are echoes of it, it it could be a it could be a new form of attempt to create a social to create a solution to this problem that you got to admit is is quite distinct from you know um, America's response to terrorism in its own country. Mm-hmm. Obviously, what happened in nine eleven is a much more dire and you know horrible um, event um, and so spectacular compared to you know a few hundred people dying here and there in, in Xinjiang. But um, we we didn't go on a you know, a huge human development campaign throughout the Middle East to solve that problem. Yeah, and I, I only bring this up not to try to, you know, the, feign any kind of expertise on the topic, but to mention that it's, I think, a flashpoint in a potential military conflict and one that might get downplayed a bit in some of the literature, um, again, because it's so difficult to distance oneself from these, you know, the, the implications in um, totalitarianism, etc., but also because where we do pay attention to flashpoints would be places like Taiwan or the South China Sea, which seem to be more obvious. But I think these areas where there's a question of human rights abuses will be used by a democratic administration in a very hardcore way to mask mm-hmm. or to be the, the, the window dressing for uh, interventionism. So I just, I just raise that as a point to be considerate of in uh, military affairs. Absolutely. We go to um, the way Mabubane discusses um, ASEAN countries. Um, he thinks basically that um, 
because um, you know so much of their growth has been tied to um, economic interdependence with China, that they will see China's rise as, as like the status quo. Here, I mean, um, I would have to agree with Mearsheimer as well that you know the changing power status of China is is a more troubling issue than the loss of you know some revenue from trade, right? I mean that 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 issue is um, better understood in terms of um, you know the structure of power relations in the area, the power relations, um, but. Uh, just to clarify, mm-hmm. ASEAN countries are what? They're Thailand, Vietnam. Well, yeah, Laos, Cambodia, Laos, Cambodia Philippines, Indo- Malaysia. Indonesia. But the issue is basically that, um, that Mahabani thinks because this is the way things have been going up to now, they will consider China the, to be like a status quo power. When Mearsheimer thinks there's no way to understand China's rise except as a revisionist power. Not only is it, you know, um, increasing in its you know, power and its economic power and also its latent power potential, it is going to want, it is already starting to display that it wants to rewrite some of the rules of the game, things that are in its national interests. And so by that, by that very, you know, reason, it's not a status quo power. But Mababani continually sort of talks about uh, China's role in the region as if it's simply main, trying to maintain the, the harmonious status quo. And I think that's really where um, he and Mearsheimer disagree. Is it is it time now to get into what Mearsheimer thinks should happen? I, I've listened to this debate, and I was surprised that he... I, I'm not going to say he was bloodthirsty. He's clearly not that. He's a scientist, so he, he, he speaks very calmly and cool-headed. But he, he seems to... You know, he uses language like, I'm going to bet on the United States in this conflict, and he seems to want that to happen. He doesn't want to see China become a regional hegemon. Uh, however, however much it's entitled to that, you know, the United States seem to be entitled to it with the Monroe Doctrine, but not China. And he comes out hard and, you know, China will not be a regional hegemon. The, the United States, although he denies that it's an extra regional hegemon, will act as one throughout that area and will keep, you know, will keep China from being the, the strong man of the region. Mm-hmm. Why does he want that so badly? Where is he coming from in this debate? Well, it's in the interests of any, major power and especially a, a country like the United States to prevent another regional regional hegemon from from um, from growing or from be, from any other state becoming a regional hegemon because becoming a regional hegemon gives you a huge amount of safety and gives you a whole nother level of um, capacity for power projection once you don't have to worry about your own your own neighborhood and that you, that's really the core of what you know his argument in the tragedy of great power politics is is that mm-hmm. you ha- they have to keep grasping they have to keep reaching out because you're never really secure and um, for the reason for that reason so you could say for that structural reason and also for the reason that you know the United States has been engaged in in Asia for you know, 200 years in one way or another and has been trying to um, play power politics there, oftentimes um, by, um, you know, diminishing um, China's power. There's no real reason to expect that, that, that that's going to change. Um, there might be various yeah. ways of, um, of countering China's rise, but the fact that the United States is going to stay there and try to balance against it is something that um, – 
I think for very good reasons, um, Mearsheimer is right to expect. He, he just also wants that to happen is the other thing. Yeah, I mean, is he missing a point that, or does he just disagree with Mabubani's point that there should be a focus on domestic, not domestic security, but domestic health and this this uh, this conflict and going head on to the conflict to prevent the rise of a regional hegemon, i.e. China, could be to the detriment of domestic health. Does he just push push that aside and say that it's not even in the calculations of American state planners, or is it just not of interest to him? Yeah, it's period. interesting you'd say that because, you know, obviously, you know, the, the book um, or the last chapter of this book was written in 2014. So it's before coronavirus and before Donald Trump. Um, but mm-hmm. there, but there, that debate that you and I watched is, um, obviously since, um, the beginning of the coronavirus. And I think Mearsheimer just doesn't put too much emphasis on, you know, the, the domestic rumblings, you know, and even the economic, um, crisis, which, um, was brought on by, um, coronavirus. But, um, I think Mearsheimer's basic idea is that America has such a preponderance of power there now. So it should use everything to its advantage right now. And the important part of his argument is this, the time element or the dimension of, of time in um, sort of um, pressurizing the situation. The United States, it's in, it's in the interest of the United States to both either create a crisis um, with China or, um, or, or use some of China's neighbors or other countries in the region in order to start a crisis that would um, both justify um, other countries clinging closer to America for military protection and in an alliance. Um, there's also incentive to create a crisis in order to justify more military expend- expenditure to counter China. And um, the sooner that a military um, conflict or at least security competition can get in the way of China's economic development, the better it is for the United States because it's really only in the long game that you can see China truly overtaking the U.S. And it's only in a kind of, you know, long drawn out kind of cold war like occurred between the United States and the Soviet Union that you can imagine the, the, the United States so grossly overspending itself, wasting lots of money in military tech and over the long term bankrupting itself and not being able to be a player in the region. So in the near term, it's in America's incentive to to use its military to slow China's growth. I'm going to I just want to transition a bit. I want to go to the next point, which is there's another uh, our friend Christopher Lane has been writing again, and he has a piece on China uh, that was published last month, uh, which appeared in foreign policy, I believe, or was it foreign affairs, one or the other foreign affairs. Um, and, and he has something very different to say in conclusion. I think he agrees in large part with some of the realist framework that Mearsheimer lays out in that debate, but he comes to a very different conclusion on what direction the United States should head. And I think it's probably something that's more amenable to our position. Yeah. I mean, he thinks Christopher Lane, like Mearsheimer, is very critical of these sort of Panglossian views of our current period, that they're, that we yeah. live in such pacified times, this sort of Steven Pinker story of you know, the great reduction of war. Um, but really, you know, there is plenty of organized armed violence around the world in, among smaller states. Uh, and in, in this instance, in Asia Pacific, we're talking about smaller states, smaller states with grudges and, you know, not too distant past that, um, 
you know, had casualties in the millions, right? Um, yeah. And, um, you know, he's critical, of course, too, of all of this um, democratic peace theory and economic interdependence um, theory about um, that, that those things in themselves create peace. And another thing that Christopher Lane pointed out in that, in that um, article you mentioned, by the way, it's called Coming Storms, The Return of Great Power to War. Another thing he mentions is that, you know, um, the, the, the nuclear deterrence factor, which was once such a powerful, you know, um, stop on acceleration or exacerbation of conflicts is now not so much of a factor because of this, this newer development of miniaturized low yield nuclear warheads. And he thinks that there's now there's this new possibility that there, they could, people could try to, you know, use or, uh, yeah, use these, these new, these new weapons and new delivery systems. And of course the, you know, all these new long-range um, precision-guided missiles and stuff also is a reason to be fearful that people are going to want to use this new technology. Mm-hmm. And Mearsheimer, I don't think Mearsheimer disagrees with any of that. I mean, no. this is this is where they have – it's it's really a, another disagreement with Mabubani and um, the whole thing about democratic peace theory. I think uh, Mabubani kind of has that um, running through his book as, as an assumption. And that's where his economic argument's coming from, although he doesn't call for – uh, you know, China to be democratic, the system they have now is working fine and um, ASEAN countries can treat it as status quo, etc. I think there is this kind of assumption that economic integration can lead to peace. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, um, you know, uh, Lane, who often talks about this and, and Mearsheimer as well, you know, they, they, they mentioned that there's this no guarantee for peace because, you know, and everyone should know this because this is like a, a classic example that Europe was never more economically integrated than it was before World War One, right? Right. Yeah. And hmm. so the, the the nature of the Anglo-German rivalry leading up to World War One, it should be a a cautionary tale about you know sort of lazy thinking about economic interdependence and the relationship between great powers. The point that I really want to get to is that although Lane and, and Mearsheimer do have commonalities and points of agreement on the possibility of conflict and it being inevitable, Lane is going to take a step back and he's saying, well, it's not, it's not, that's not a reason for the United States to pursue this military conflict and to pursue extending its extra regional hegemony, uh, preserving it. In fact, it's, it's probably a mistake. And I think the, the, quote at the end of this is Chinese regional hegemony is not something worth going to war over. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that he's not, he doesn't mention Mearsheimer by name, I don't think, but he's obviously referencing the position that Mearsheimer took in that debate. It is worth going to war over yeah. is Mearsheimer's point. Um, yeah. And he actually mentions Mearsheimer. He says, he says this, he says, people who usually advocate restraint want more hawkish policy toward China. And that this is a clear indication. I mean, it's not, he's not saying that, oh, because Don Mearsheimer is saying this. Now we're definitely going to war because he, he's very yeah. much aware that nobody, you know, in power really listens or not enough people listen to Mearsheimer. But he thinks that, that a lot of these people think along the lines of a, the McKinder thesis that whoever controls Eurasia controls the world. And Lane would argue that that sort of worldview is based on a kind of, late 19th, early 20th century view that like steel, coal, and population is all that creates um, power in uh, in geopolitics. And I think to a large extent that's – Lane is correct. I mean, obviously, m- those things matter. Population, of course, matters. And 
you know, energy and all that stuff matters, but um, not to the extent that they did um, in the era when um, Matt Kinder was writing. And so I think Lane is critical of a kind of Kissinger-Brzezinski worldview that, um, you know, he thinks Mearsheimer is also participating in. I agree. I think that was a nice nice way to end it right there. But um, I, I was also going to cue up the next discussion by saying, you know, we, we, we wanted to bring in this discussion about military conflict and the dynamics of alliances because it will play into the next discussion about economics where there's another flashpoint here and, and it's sort of been the uh, where a lot of chauvinism with respect to China comes into play, especially from the labor bureaucracy of the United States with uh, China stealing American jobs and this sort of thing. And mm-hmm. uh, Pettis, Pettis and Klein, who are the authors of uh, Trade Wars or Class Wars, gets into that. And where we're coming from in this discussion is trying to prepare ourselves, you know, and thinking about this and, and try to find some coherence on the left. Um, for taking a position in defense of China against uh, United States uh, imperialism and intervention, and and I think you know we've we've gone through this this period uh, over the last four years with Trump, you know, basically raising the stakes over um, a trade war and kind of put stuff on human rights to the side a bit. I think, but as we go into this Biden administration, I think the stakes are going to get higher. Um, we're going to find this this pivot to Asia returning. We're going to find, I, I would expect, a lot more on human rights abuses. And I think these flashpoints are just going to become more and more prominent. So being prepared for what the stakes are here, um, I think it's important to have responses to these, these, these complicated issues, especially around the Uyghurs, around Tibet, around these free trade agreements, but also how to, how to combat the, the liberal left perspective of you know uh integrating into the you know capitalist market and and uh, and we'll also try to do a a little bit more in-depth um discussion of the nature of military um armaments and competition in the south china sea the air aircraft carrier versus missile uh buildup um between uh china and um the u.s navy <laughs> that that's your fair warning we'll, we'll put a time you know a, a time marker on that so I'll be, uh, the, the military history nerds can just go straight to that piece alright should we say anything else? goodbye I feel like I should say something else like uh, <laughs> catch you later <laughs> smash that like button smash that like button subscribe 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 don't use that how about edit this in? Um, thanks for listening.